0: Well, I do invite you, if you have your Bible, let's open to the book of Hebrews. And we are in chapter 2. In fact, we'll just finish chapter 2 this morning. So Hebrews chapter 2, I always encourage you to bring a Bible some way you can look at the text. If you don't have one, don't worry, in just a moment, the words will be up here on the screen behind me. Hebrews 2. I wonder this morning how many of us feel a need for a priest. (laughs) Kind of awkward. Do you ever feel a need for a priest? That's something that's in your mind very frequently. My guess is most of us seldom, if ever, think in these terms. Unless maybe you were raised like I was in a tradition where priests were prominent. I've shared many occasions that I was raised in a very traditional Roman Catholic home where priests were a significant part of our weekly, if not daily, experience. We had some concept of this go-between between between God and us. That's what a priest is, a mediator, a go-between. We had some conception of that. I remember even as a kid... Once a month, because we were faithful, once a month, being dragged to church to go to confession. That was terrifying. If you've ever experienced that, going into that little closet and um, with somebody behind the screen and confessing your sin so that the priest would forgive you and give you grace. The priest would administer sacraments through which we receive grace, the Eucharist every Sunday for sustaining, saving grace administered by the priest. I grew up in that experience, and I'm going to argue, even from the book of Hebrews, I think that's wrong. So I'm not condoning that. I think it's wrong. But I just mentioned that to say that we had some concept of the need for a priest or what a priest was. It's it's interesting that in almost every major religion, there is some sort of priesthood. Some some innate sense of a go-between between between the deity and mankind. Almost every major religion has some kind of priesthood. However, when when we come to the Bible, priests are not simply the exclusive domain of kind of world or pagan religions but actually priests are the central feature a central feature of god's revelation in the bible as we think of the old cover the old testament that the writer of hebrews will refer to so many times at the heart of the giving of the law on mount sinai great revelation of god on mount sinai that we've learned is mediated through angels at the heart of that law is the design of the tabernacle where God would symbolically dwell with his people. And inseparable from the tabernacle is the details for a priesthood, the institution of the priesthood, God's design. This is God's word. The priesthood, including most specifically the high priest. So much detail about the high priest. Here's a little image, picture of a high priest in the Old Testament. And there's a whole chapter just on his clothing. Did you know that, how significant this is? And, and then we get so much, much of the heart of the law about the duties of the priest and their offerings and what they did and how they represented the people before God and how they represented God to the people. So this is at the very heart of God's revelation in the Old Testament. A significant portion deals with priests. And the, the overall message, as you read the end of the book of Exodus and you read all of Leviticus and into Numbers, the, the big message of this tabernacle and priesthood is, is simply this. If God, if God who, who is holy, if he's going to dwell with his people, that's what the tabernacle symbolizes, God dwelling in the midst of his people. If God is going to dwell with his people, there must be a mediator, A mediator that represents God to the people and the people to God. That's what the holy, they were set apart, the holy priesthood was for, to mediate between God and the people. And their chief role, as we see it in the Old Testament, was to make atonement for the people by these ongoing sacrifices. To make atonement, some covering for sin. By these ongoing sacrifices. So that large message from the Old Testament is. If God is going to dwell with sinful people. The holy God. There must be mediation. That gives this ongoing atonement. So this idea of priesthood. Is not incidental. In the Bible. But it's right at the very heart. Of God's purpose. And we know now that that whole system that we read about in so much detail in the Old Testament of tabernacle and priest and sacrifices, all of that is only a shadow and a copy of a much greater heavenly reality that has now been revealed in the Son, Jesus. And this becomes the major theme of this letter, this sermon letter that we call Hebrews, that he's going to unfold in such rich detail. And our text this morning, Hebrews two seventeen, is the introduction to this great theme for the first time. Let me read it. Hebrews two, you can follow your Bible or on the screen. As he concludes this section, Hebrews 2.17, Therefore, he's been speaking of the Son all through there. He, that's the Son, Jesus. He had to be made like his brethren, his brothers and sisters in all things, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. One author called, chapter 2, verse 17, the nerve center of the letter. I like that description, the nerve center. Really, everything that this letter is going to be about is right here in this verse, these themes that he is going to develop. He gives it in a kernel form. The kernel form, really, the whole message of his letter. Now, if you look there at the first word of verse 17, therefore, uh, he's he's drawing a conclusion to what he's been arguing up to this point. These verses form this conclusion of what he has been arguing. What he's been arguing. So let me, just one more time, let me remind you of the flow of thought in Hebrews 1 and 2. Hebrews chapter 1 and 2, what we have been through and are finishing here this morning I gave you a one-line summary of these two chapters, so I'll do that again this morning. Just repeat it so we hear it and understand how he's arguing. Here's his, here's his thought. Here's the main thing of these first chap- two chapters. The eternal Son, God the Son, who is God's final word, his final revelation, the culminating revelation, all that was shadowed and pictured now is coming to pass in Jesus, so The eternal Son, who is God's final word, has now come to be exalted uniquely, uniquely as the Son, and that means He's exalted as the heir of everything, the author of salvation. It's chapter 1. He's come to be, He's the exalted Son who has taken His seat at the right hand of the Father, and the way He comes to that exaltation is through His incarnation and sufferings. Just what we were celebrating at the Lord's table. He comes to this exaltation at the Father's right hand as the author of salvation, as the heir of all things, through His incarnation and suffering. And that's what He's explaining in chapter 2. This eternal Son who is exalted, how did He come to be exalted? Through becoming a man, incarnation, and His suffering. So we've been asking the question through chapter 2, why? Why this incarnation and suffering? Why his incarnation and suffering? As Parker mentioned, the Lord's table seems like a point of weakness, and it's the heart of our message. Why? In chapter 2, he is explaining, probably in more detail and definition than anywhere in the Bible, it was fitting, he said, chapter 2, verse 10 as he thinks of Christ coming lower than the angels and tasting death for everyone, he says it's fitting, it's appropriate for God to do it this way. It's appropriate to his purpose and character for God to perfect, to qualify the pioneer of our salvation through sufferings, through his incarnation and sufferings. It's it's appropriate for God to do it this way. If you look back at verse 14, we thought on this last week on the incarnation. That just means Jesus taking on flesh, taking on human nature. He said it in so clear words, verse 14, since the children, that's believers, that's you and I, the children share in flesh and blood. That's a human nature, a mortal, weak human nature. He himself likewise also partook of the same. He, he took on this human nature that through death he might deliver us. He took it on to die, and it's his death somehow delivers us. He cancels the power of the devil who has the power over death, and he sets us free from the fear of death. So we saw that last week. So verse 17, let's come to our text now. I'm going to put it back on the screen here so you see it. He's he's bringing this whole argument to a conclusion. Why the incarnation and sufferings of the Son? Therefore, hence... Here's his summary, his conclusion, and, and listen, he's going to really say almost exactly what he said already, but he's just going to do it in fresh language and get us to his main theme. So if you just look at that verse, just, just follow him. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers and sisters. He had to be. So that corresponds all the way back to verse 10 when it says it was a fitting for him to do it this way. There's a necessity of him taking on flesh and suffering. He had to be made like, and then notice that next phrase, he had to be made like his brothers and sisters in all things. Again, that corresponds back to verse 14. Since the children share in flesh and blood, he likewise also partook of the same. He had to be made like us, that is, he took on our human nature and suffered, he had to Chapter 2, verse 14, it says that he might die, but now he gives this fresh language that gets to his main theme. Do you see it? Why did he have to be made like us in all things? That he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. And now we've come to the very heart of his letter, the great theme that he's going to develop. Now, he doesn't develop it here. He does this often in this letter. He, he drops it in here. And then later on, he's going to develop it. He's going to get to the all the way to the end of chapter 4 before he picks this back up and develops it. Because remember, his bigger purpose in this opening section is that we would pay attention to this revelation in the Son. We would not let go of it. So he's going to continue on that theme. But here he just drops in that he's a high priest, and then he'll pick it up later. Now, we want to see just what he says here under this heading, Jesus, our high priest, which in some ways could be the title of the whole letter. So let's just, like we do every Sunday, let's just follow his, his steps here as he, for the first time, unfolds this idea of Jesus, our high priest. So notice, number one, first, his designation as high priest, his designation as high priest. Now, I want you to just pause here because we should be stunned by this. It is stunning. This is the first use in his letter to designate Jesus as the high priest. But do you know? This is the only book, the only letter in the entire New Testament that ever designates Jesus as high priest. Do you know that? This is not common. They didn't think in these terms. Other writers, certainly, we see it in Paul, we see it in Peter, we see it in John, other writers will describe Jesus' death in sacrificial terms, as an offering, as the Lamb slain, but never, never as a priest. Isn't that fascinating? Hmm. Now, I could speculate maybe why Other authors don't do that as their different emphasis, what they're trying to emphasize. Probably one main reason is because Jesus is not from the priestly line, is he? We understand that he's Messiah. He's the son of David. He's the king. But a priest, he's not from the priestly line. And our author has to explain that. And he will. We'll get there. So we ask the question, well, how did he get this? What is the origin here of our author's designation of Jesus as high priest? Now, we're so accustomed to this today because we know probably the letter. We know the concepts. We take it for granted. Don't take it for granted. It is really insightful and quite stunning that he is called the high priest. What is the origin of our author? Designation of him as high priest. You know what I think it is? The Bible. (laughs) That is a careful, insightful reading of the Old Testament. That's what it is. He doesn't just grab this from nowhere. What we're in for in these remaining chapters is to watch the author go to the Old Testament and show you. to read it, and that Jesus is the high priest. Namely, Psalm 110, verse 4, you are a priest, connection back to Melchizedek, connection to the whole sacrificial system. It is really rich what he's going to unfold. But we, mostly Gentiles, 2,000 years removed, we have to work hard to appreciate what it means that he's a high priest. Because we just don't swim in those waters. His Jewish readers who lived in this context, I mean, how thrilling for them to read. He's a perfect high priest, but that doesn't have the same punch to us today. So we're going to have to work in the, this book to let it sit on us in a, in a really powerful way that we desperately need this. And here he is. So, just start there. His, his designation. Just a couple things here under that. He he becomes high priest. He becomes such by means of his incarnation and suffering. Now, see see his language there. He uses this all through the writer or all through the letter. He had to be made like his brethren. What's that mean? Well, he had to take on flesh and suffer that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. That's how he comes to this designation as high priest. His title is through his incarnation and his sufferings. He becomes, that's the language, he becomes the high priest this way. That's why it's necessary for him to take on flesh to suffer. Ultimately is that he might be our high priest. It was necessary for him. He had to be made like us to become our high priest. Remember, priests represent the people before God. Priests have to be taken from the people. So priest is. I said last week, priests aren't demigods. Priests are taken from the people. So he had to be made like us fully if he is to be our high priest. He represents us. So look at the language there again, verse 17. He had to be made like his brethren in all things that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, which is this way of referring to that he might represent us before God. We're dealing with things about God here. That's why we need a priest. From God's side, we desperately need a priest. And he had to be made like us that he might represent us before God. He's going to pick up this theme later in chapter 5 about what that things pertaining to God means that he represents us. These are the things that really matter, whether they're on our radar or not. The things pertaining to God, our relationship to God, our representation before God. That's why he had to be made like us, to represent us. Now notice also in this designation of high priest, it says what kind of high priest is he? You see it there in verse seventeen that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. <laughs> merciful and faithful—that is the result of his faithful work as a high priest—is mercy. He is a faithful high priest. He perfectly obeys the Father. His faithful obedience in this office, in his sufferings. He does not fail. He does not falter. And because of that, he's full of mercy. It leads to mercy. Just enjoy this. He's a merciful and faithful high priest. He's not an aloof high priest. He's merciful and faithful. He's full of compassion. He's full of careful consideration of our weakness. That's the kind of high priest he is. And we'll see why he's that way. He's going to say it in verse 18. That's the kind of high priest we have. That's why his becoming like us and his sufferings and being tempted are essential to his priesthood. If he's going to be a merciful And faithful high priest who rescues us. So that's his designation. Number two. Next step. Notice his chief work as high priest. His chief central work as high priest. Now again if you're not familiar. What what was the chief work of the high priest. Under the old covenant. Under the law. You think of the tabernacle or the temple. Well his chief work. Was to make atonement for the people on the Day of Atonement. It's the uniqueness here, one of the uniquenesses of a high priest, right? Over just other priests. His was the role on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, to enter the Holy of Holies one time a year with blood and to sprinkle the top of that ark called the atonement cover. That was seen as the footstool of God to sprinkle it for the atonement, the covering of sin of the people. They're cleansing once a year. That's the great work of the high priest. Now, I won't say much about it because our writer is going to go into detail about this. We'll get there. But notice, so what's the chief? Where does he go right away when he says that he became like us to become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to, what's it say? Make propitiation or atonement for the sins of the people. So, what's his, what's his chief work? To make atonement. That is to purify, to cleanse God's people of sins, defilement, and guilt. That's his chief work. To make atonement, covering of our sin, purifying, cleansing of sin's defilement that keeps us from the presence of God and our guilt, the penalty of sin that is removed. He purifies. And that work of atonement results in our forgiveness, our reconciliation. you familiar with the word atonement? All through the Bible. Our English word, at one. This covering of sin, this purifying, that leads to reconciliation with God. The idea of the word. It leads to peace. That's what he accomplishes. Now that, as we, if you read the Old Testament and all of those regulations, that was the heart of the sacrificial system and the tabernacle in the Old Testament. Over and over and over, these sacrifices through the year, and then on the Day of Atonement, the great day of atonement for the people, the necessity of atonement by means of sacrifice that was just ingrained in the people. If God is going to dwell with us, The necessity of atonement, my sin. And how is that atonement achieved? By by the shedding of blood. That's how. But notice here a little closer how he describes this atonement, the word he uses. I want to highlight this. Our versions may differ here. Mine says, again, that he became a merciful and faithful high priest to make propitiation. Propitiation for the sins of the people. hilaskomai This is a it is a rare word in the New Testament. This word group, hilas word group, is only used six times in the whole New Testament. It's much more frequent in the Old Testament, as the Greek translation of the Old Testament and it's often the word, one of these words that's used to translate the Hebrew word that we translate, make atonement, is one of these words. It's a very common word in just general Greek of the day. So we know what it means. What is this word group that we, mind translates, propitiation, maybe your says make atonement, that's fine, just to understand what the word means. Well, the word used here means to appease or to placate someone's Anger to make them favorable. So that's the way it's used all through just common Greek. Sometimes in reference to those Greek gods, Parker was mentioning that they worship, that were caprice and could fly off the handle and get angry for all kinds of things. And so the people are always trying to do something to placate, to appease them, to make them favorable, some kind of sacrifice for them. Now, we might think, well, that kind of language seems really inappropriate to the, Bible, to the New Testament. God's not like that. And yet, the authors selectively, like I said, only a handful of times, use this language because they're trying to communicate something really essential about atonement. Namely this, atonement includes the turning away of God's righteous anger by God-provided sacrifice. That's this word. So at the heart of atonement, it's not just we talk about removing our sin. Well, that's true. Removing the defilement of sin. That's true. But the real issue with sin is that it evokes the just judgment or wrath of God. That's at the the core. And so all through the Old Testament, when they brought those sacrifices, those whole burnt offerings, there was an implicit idea that they were in place of you. You deserved this judgment. The sacrifice received it in your place. So this idea of propitiation or turning away the anger of God, the just wrath of God, is all through the Old Testament and it's carried on here to the New Testament and what Jesus does. Because sin... Always evokes the just, righteous anger, wrath, judgment of God. Always. That's who He is as God who is holy. He has an innate opposition to evil in all of its forms. Always. It's definitional to God. He doesn't stop ever being holy. Now, he can, he can delay the execution of that judgment in his long suffering, but it always arouses, rightly, that right just anger. It's not like us flying off the handles, not like the Greek gods and being capricious. It is his steady, unrelenting, uncompromised antagonism to evil in all of its forms. And that must be removed. If we are going to be at one, that is reconciled to God, peace with God. So that's what the author's saying our high priest has done. Just like the high priest in the Old Testament would do that with those blood sacrifices. So our high priest in Jesus became man, became like us to make propitiation. It's a good one. I know we don't use that word much, but I would argue hang on to that word. It's just one of those unique words that we should keep. Because it so communicates this idea of God's just wrath being removed. Now, the Bible doesn't have any pagan concepts of God, as I said, and flying off the handle in a caprice kind of anger. The Bible is clear that it is in His love, God's love, that gives His Son to make propitiation. It is God's love that provides the propitiation. It's not human beings trying to do their best to make sure God is favorable. God's love provides it. So just, just get this. Jesus making propitiation, His sacrifice does not make God loving. He is love. He's love. Christ's sacrifice doesn't simply turn the wrath of God into the love of God. It's His love that provides the Son to be the propitiation. At the same time, God, in His love, is full of wrath against us sinners. And in that love, provides a way to turn away His wrath. That's the gospel. That is, He makes provision in His love. He makes provision so that his love may realize its full purpose of us as children. That's what's in the cross. Now we'll come to much more, but but, but again, there, right there, there is our greatest need. Whether you feel that this morning or not, you, me, we desperately need a priest who will turn away. The wrath of God From us And that's Who Jesus is So whether you live consciously Of your need of a priest You have a need It's the greatest need of your life And we have such a priest Who has done it We'll see how he does that He doesn't explain here Doesn't explain it at all Doesn't even mention here clearly his death. We'll we'll get to that, how he does it, how he fulfills all of what was pictured in the Old Testament. But just now, no, we have this great high priest. Now let me get to the third final. His present help as high priest. So we see his chief work. He's going to explain that. But now he, he ends this section with his present help as high priest. Our author concludes by returning to his pastoral purpose. It's never far from him. So he's going to connect Jesus, high priest, making propitiation for, verse 18, he's going to relate that now to our present condition, our present need. He's going to connect this priestly work of Jesus to our present condition and need for perseverance in face of daily pressure to compromise our faith. Remember, that's his great pastoral purpose in this book, hold fast to Christ. And so even here, as he introduces his great theme, He doesn't explain his great theme yet. He just wants to immediately connect it to our present condition. So he says it like this, quite stunningly. He's going to say this again in chapter 4 when he picks it up again. For, since, speaking of Christ, for, you could say it this way, because, because he suffered when he was tempted, he's able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. This is really remarkable. So just let me close with these couple things. His suffering in temptation or testing uniquely uniquely qualifies him to come to our aid in temptation. That's what he's saying. Because he suffered in what he was tempted, when he was tempted or tested, he, he is able to come to our aid when we are tempted. Now he uses, like the Bible does, this general word for testing. Translate it test or tempt. Same word. He's thinking here, I think, mostly of testing, but the negative element of testing is temptation. Right? That is temptation to sin, temptation to disobey God, temptation to fall away. In testing. So he says that Christ suffered in what when he was tested and tempted. That is, in one sense, it refers this tempting, testing, his entire life as a weak human being, that is in the weakness of our flesh. His entire life, his weakness, his his rejection, his being reproached, it was all part of his testing and temptation if you will it was all a trial of obedience will he obey the father continue to trust the father now we know of some specifics of his testing and temptation obviously we know of, of the first time in the wilderness and satan himself coming to tempt We know of his various trials, testing as he is forsaken, forsaken by his family, forsaken by almost everybody, forsaken by his followers. We see it on display in the garden, maybe the most vivid experience of that when he is sweating drops of blood, suffering in that temptation, praying, Father, Father, take this cup from me, but not my will, but yours be done. We get some glimpse into the level of suffering in the face of his testing, in the face of his temptation. The horror of what he was about to experience. And then we see it on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He suffered in that testing, in that temptation, in a way that, we never will, and because he has done that, he is able to come to our aid. That is, in those testings and temptations, he knows the anguish, the pain, the turmoil of that temptation and that testing, so that he is, he says he's able, this is this, he has this special mercy he is disposed to as a result of the suffering of temptation. That's why he's a merciful and faithful high priest. He's been there. He is so identified with us in his suffering when tempted, when tried, that he is able to come to your aid. So I just end with that note. He is able to strengthen, comfort, and deliver us from all temptation. He is able, that's what he's saying. He's thinking right now, so as he explains the high priestly work of Christ, making atonement, propitiation, securing our inheritance, our home, he's going to get to that and develop it. It's precious. Right now, he's thinking he's the kind of high priest that will get you safely home. Right now. He's able to come to your aid. Right now, He so relates with you. He is so moved in that way by your temptation and our suffering in it and our trials and our testing because He has experienced it. And He is a merciful and compassionate and faithful high priest. And He comes to strengthen us In the face of it, He comes to comfort us in this testing and ultimately to deliver us from all temptations. We must only cry to Him. Like that song we sang this morning, By Your mercy, oh, deliver us, O Lord. Just rehearsing our temptation, our trial. That's what we do. We cry, and He hears it, and He comes to our aid as a merciful and faithful high priest. This is the kind of high priest we have. As I said before, he's not aloof. He's not standing behind a screen or behind a door and says, I I rescued him. I don't want anything to do with him, but I I did my duty. I rescued them. He is so identified with us in his suffering that he rushes to our aid because he knows it. He knows it. If, If you think for a moment that you are alone in your suffering like no one's ever experienced this before, he knows it. He knows it he obeyed and he strengthens us to not quit now that's the great temptation that they're facing here in this letter to fall away to be hardened to turn away now called on him he will bring you home so what, what a glorious truth as i said the reason he took on flesh and his sufferings was not only to achieve our atonement, but was to be this kind of high priest for us, merciful and faithful to come to your rescue and bring you home. Do you know him? Is he your high priest? Do you know your need for this priest? Do you feel it? I hope you do. And I hope you're secure that he's done it. And in the face of daily pressure, cry to him. Come. Come rescue. And he comes. Let me pray for us as we continue on this, Lord willing, next week. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we are so thankful that you, you in your love, gave your son to become like us. And to experience this great ordeal of suffering in his testing and trial and temptation. That he rescues us. He secured our salvation and he comes to our aid now. So come Lord Jesus. Come Lord Jesus. And strengthen and comfort and deliver us. And bring us home. We ask in Jesus name. Amen.